Welcome back to the Gen Z Speaks podcast. We have a really special guest, but before I introduce him, let me introduce my uh, amazing, not so amazing, sometimes amazing co-hosts. Matthew Gutierrez, the future of business, real estate, project management, everything. How you doing, man? Pretty good, dude. Just cruising by this week, right? Cruising by, cruising by. Last but not least, the tech wizard, the, the new title that we gave Genesh is our tech wizard. How you doing? The future of Intel. I forgot to mention that. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Just, uh, you know, enjoying life. Oh, man. You always say that. I never understand what you mean. Enjoying life. What do you mean, man? Just enjoying life. We're we living out here. You know what I mean? All right. All right. Well, we have a special guest, like I said in the beginning of the podcast. Um, his name is Thomas Percy Kim. He's a filmmaker um, studying film at USC. Uh, Thomas has already made uh, a series of short films. His short film C um, was bought out by HBO Max, and you can you can you can see it there. His current short film that he recently produced, uh, Busan 1999, is currently in the film festival circuit, and we're happy to have Thomas on the show. He's a really talented filmmaker, and his short films have uh, garnered a lot of attention, um, both on the critic side and and on the business side of the entertainment industry. So we're Lucky to have you, Thomas. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm, you know, a filmmaker from sunny Los Angeles, thinking about maybe moving to New York, but uh, we'll see. And I'm um, just happy to chat with you guys, talk about everything about, you know, diversity and, you know, you know what we're talking about, you know, like what the youth are talking about and uh, um, everything in between. So happy to be here. Well, I want to start with, I, you get this question a lot, I'm sure, but I'm really curious, what what was the moment that you realized that filmmaking is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Like, what was that, if you have a moment, or what inspired you to do what you do now? Man, hitting with the hard questions. Um, you know, I, in freshman year of high school, that's like when I started filmmaking, because, you know, I found a Canon DSLR in my closet, my parents' closet in middle school, um, started taking photos, became like the artsy Instagram, you know, hashtag artsy fartsy Instagram kid in middle school. Um, and I want to take photography class in high school, right? Um, and my guidance counselor was like, Thomas, sorry, like all the, I mean, basically what she was saying is like all the visco, the white visco girls, like they signed up for the photography class and it was full, you know, so I didn't, I couldn't sign up. Um, and so she was like, you know, my guidance counselor was just like, take filmmaking. And I thought filmmaking was like analog film, you know, photography with film. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I took it, you know, I realized it wasn't photography. It was this entirely different medium. Um, and I was like, wow, this is, you know, there's a cheesy quote that every film student knows where it's like, you know, filmmaking is photography 24 times per second. Um, but that's really what I thought. I was like, oh my God, this is like a, it's like a bigger canvas for me to play in. Um, and, you know, I, I, I started working on this stop motion short film that took um, you know, took me from freshman year to junior year. Um, and that was, you know, got about 13K in awards money from that. And then that was also my application film for USC. It just led me into a lot of cool places. Um, um, but, you know, when I was making that short film, that was like film school to me, you know, going from storyboarding to VFX, um, you know, that short film, if anyone's seen Coraline, it's kind of like Coraline where it's like these puppets. And then I like made a custom software that could basically... Um, extract live action actors' eyes and then paste them onto these puppets, kind of like the way Snapchat uses like their face filters, but it was all before this came out on Snapchat, right? Um, so I did that, you know, that was amazing. And and that was, again, that was like film school to me. And uh, that's kind of like where I fell in love, I think, with filmmaking and, and realized, wow, like this is something that I get, you know? I know maybe you guys have that moment in life where it's like, oh, wait, this is something that... I just comes easy to me. Just like, I understand it, you know, like something like math, like academia, never really, like, I never really got it, you know, um, but something about filmmaking and telling stories and the craft of it all just felt so easy and right. And so I just kept following it. And I was like, this is, this is, this is sick. I'm just going to keep doing it. I want you to tell us a story about how you made C because it's really interesting. You made your stock motion short film. And I think filmmaking is a lot about entrepreneurship and, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you got 13K from it and then you put that money into making C, then you started a Kickstarter and then you got investors to pitch in as well. And so talk to us because it's a high budget short film. I think if the budget was $30,000, right, for C. So tell us how you made that happen and, and just the hustle that it took to make C. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was like 23K, not 30, but um, absolutely. I mean, I think the reason why I've gotten to where I am today is, is because I am someone who puts all my eggs into one basket. And this is a strategy that might not work for everyone. You know, but a lot of people, you know, starting up, starting up in the, the film industry or wherever they are, they kind of spread themselves a little bit too thin. You know, they work on a lot of projects to get the bad ones out of the way, I suppose, um, which makes sense. You know, quantity over quality. But also my strategy has always been quality over quantity. You know, every single project that I work on, I work on it as if it's my last you know, project. You know, I'll put all of my savings into it, you know, everything I have into it. Um, and, you know, like just go all out, you know, find the biggest cast that I can find, um, you know, you know, email, cold email hundreds of people to find, you know, the right crew and cast, et cetera. Um, and I think that entrepreneurial spirit has always uh, really paid off. You know, I invested, you know, basically, yeah, again, everything from oh, the, the, the stop motion film um, in awards money, um, invested all of my savings from working at a camera, uh, camera shop. Um, and then, yeah, again, did the Kickstarter thing, you know, got some more money. Um, and then just put all that into my first live action short film. Right. So, you know, I'm always trying to jump as high as I can on that ladder, you know, instead of going one rung at a time, I really think like if, when you invest everything you have into one project, you're bound to get a bigger return. Um, so I'm like, all I'm like all in, go all in or nothing. You know what I mean? Um, and again, it's a risky move, but so far, every single time it's paid off um, financially and career-wise. Um, so yeah, we you know did the you know put together that money senior year of high school, um, cast the guy from uh, Keong Lee from Maze Runner, and then um, again like everyone on the cast and crew was cold called, cold emailed. I didn't know a single person in the film industry except for the cinematographer who was this buddy that I met you know at a um, um, like a film festival kind of thing called Young Arts. Um, anyone who's under 18 and is an artist, I cannot recommend that um, organization enough. They've given me like almost like 40K and just basically just like, you know, to, to fly me out to Miami for a week, to fly me out to New York, LA, and just like do all these conferences and, you know, events. Um, you should guys should look it up if you guys don't know um, anything about it. But anyways, uh, yeah, did that. And then I met the cinematographer for C um from young arts right so he was this other 18 year old who had never shot on this thing called lexa mini which is a the, you know the hollywood camera um we were just running around you know in massachusetts just filming this thing with like an actual professional crew and again like a legit cast um yeah to see you say that you want to put all your eggs in one basket and then like run with it I feel like that's such a difficult thing for people to even grasp, right? Because, I mean, even successful people, I hear a lot of successful people say that, but then you'll see other people say, like, try as many things as you can. You're young, you know, go after everything, anything you want to do, just run with it. And uh, it just seems like there's just varying, like, determinations of success, right? Like, people do all types of things, and just because somebody does something doesn't mean it's right, and just because somebody does something else doesn't mean they're right. Um, so it's just cool to see that you're young. Dude, you're killing it. You're ambitious and um, just, yeah. So out of curiosity, man, uh, is there like, are you like a film buff or did, was there anything like that really piqued your interest and you're like, yeah, let me get into that because of, because of this? Yeah, I mean, um, I didn't start off as a film buff. You know, I grew up watching solely Star Wars, Harry Potter, Ghibli, just like the most, you know, cliche run-of-the-mill robot action sci-fi kind of stuff you know because my dad loves that stuff um so i had no introduction to cinema at all uh, growing up um it was only after i discovered filmmaking saw films like whiplash moonlight you know the 2016 era um i fell into filmmaking and then i began to discover you know the 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 you know decades of films before <laughs> moonlight and and la la land um and, you know, became, I think, a film buff then, you know, then and there. Um, yeah, yeah. Any specific ones that, like, piqued your interest and, like, that's how you kind of want to curate your um, your filmmaking? Yeah, I think with the stop motion film, you know, at that time, I just hadn't seen enough films. Um, I then, you know, I was, I think, more commercial minded in the sense that, like, you know, I was trying to replicate, you know, those traditional animated films where, you know, you, you watch something like, I don't know, Spirit Away or Coraline, and then you just have an idea for a story that's a little bit more formulaic, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, 
something happens and then um there, there's just the formula in, in story structure there you know there's a formula to these stories and that's kind of that's kind of where i was leaning towards and then i discovered art house cinema you know um i think moonlight is such a great example of bringing art house to mainstream audiences you know it's a film that's yes it's like micro budget it was sub million uh, or just just over a million um and you know it had employed these very formalistic techniques but uh it was also very immersive you know a lot of art house films low budget stuff can be either prohibited by the the money like the lack of funds or it can just come off a little bit pretentious and slow um which i'm i love you know i love i'm a sucker for those films too it's just sometimes hard to sit through um so i think what moonlight did moonlight did so well is just like balance um you know you know like hip hop music for example with like the art house um really thoughtful cinematography and story um and another like comparison film would be this old film called a brighter summer's day by this guy named edward yang you know um there's wong kar wai you know so many examples i think of uh making art house more mainstream and by art house it's like a loose definition of independent cinema which is usually something that's just low budget just because you know the more bigger budget you get the more commercial you get the more people have expectations of you know what that product needs to be so that they can sell it so that they can get get it to as many audiences as possible yeah definitely you know go, going back to SI a little bit you you mentioned that you cold call or cold email a bunch of uh, director or not directors, but cinematographers, um, you know, actors. Um, so you get all these people, you get all these talented people together, and uh, you 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 directed the movie, correct? So That's correct. You, you were you were the leader. So how how did that feel? You have all these talented people, and you're just a young director. Did did it feel? Were you like nervous? Were you scared that you were gonna mess up, or, or how was that? Walk me through that. Yeah, um, you know. Of course, of course, I was nervous. You know, like I remember filming the first day and then going to bed and literally waking up mid, you know, mid sleep and sweat, being like, "Oh my god, we missed that shot!" Even though that was just like a nightmare. You know, you're just something about being on set. There's just so much pressure. You're on a time crunch. Um, it's very, very stressful. Um, but I think I, so. It was a great learning experience. You know, now, now, you know, I go in with so much prep um, so that I can play on set. You know, I can improv on set and play with you know the actors and find the scene because i've done so much preparation beforehand um, but back then you know i didn't know how that worked you know as a director there's only so many days you're on set so there's only so many so much time you can practice um ibrahim we actually met at an acting class and I, you know um that is incredibly valuable because you know there's only again there's only so much time that you spend with actors on set um that any sort of practice you can get outside of set is so valuable um i think one of the biggest things i've learned in, on that first you know the first few days while shooting that was just like okay you yell cut right yell cut and then as you're walking to the actor you know like 10 seconds um you have to think of the right the most brief concise way to say something that will get them to spark their creativity and their imagination to change their behavior right so it's like it's like reverse psychology sort of but without you know you're you're using techniques of like reverse psychology to like almost hint at something without telling them to do a certain thing if that makes sense because you never right. want to puppeteer an actor right. um and so it's it's a very difficult um practice that you know is unlike any other craft out there it's it's so unlike it's the opposite of cinematography you know it's the opposite of like you know technical aspects of filmmaking um and it requires a lot of uh training and thought um and so that was one of the ch most most challenging things for me you know you, you, you yell cut and then like in those 10 seconds how are you going to convince this person um to do something to change their behavior without um you know having them lose their ego or like without having hurting their without ego. the pressure involved right yeah exactly exactly sure. and, and you know um that was very challenging also you know also because the main actor ki hong lee you know he's an actual actor right so he's done this for longer than i've been alive you know um and you know he was just like at one point i remember he was like thomas do you just want me to be like more like angry in the scene 
And like, I was just like, oh, it's just the senior actor just fucking with the, the amateur director, you know what I mean? Like the first time director, like, but I was like, I, I didn't have any other uh, solutions, like kind of, you know, bring, bring up the stakes in the scene. So it's just like, yeah, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's it, you know, maybe that's just what we need. Um, so I go back to the monitor, like, you know, action and, um, you know, he brings it, he brings authenticity to that very basic word, you know? And I also realized at that point, you know, like different actors, different level of actors, like require different kind of direction. Um, if you talk to, uh, what's his name? Denis Villeneuve, he just shot like Dune and shit. Um, I know that he, when he works with like top cast, he just says like slower or faster or more this or more that. And it's like all the things that you wouldn't want to say um, that you learn not to say at, in acting school. Um, but really trained professional actors they know how to get there they know how to find the truth in those words um so that's something else i learned too you know yeah man i don't know it seems like as a director it's just uh there's so many factors you need to take into account and like you mentioned it's a lot about preparation and just trying to understand the scene before um you know going out there and directing the actors you know it feels like to me directors are kind of like army generals where they kind of have to just tell everyone what to do, right? And and that's really just how it is. I don't know about that, actually. I think I think it depends, right, Thomas? I mean, like, everybody has their own directing style. And, and you know, some directors definitely are army generals, uh, as whereas some directors are very, you know, um, relaxed on set, and, and they spend more time in rehearsal, so by the time they get on set, you know, everybody knows what they're doing. What, so, Thomas, how would you describe yourself as a director? I mean, I'm sure you're young, you're still figuring it out, but, like, of all the movies you've shot, like, how would you describe your directing style? Yeah, I think there is this misconception in Hollywood that, like, as the director, you know, you are this guy literally on top of everyone else with a bullhorn telling everyone, like, move here, move there, you know, do this, do that. Um, and I think that's a very inundated idea. Um, I think as a director, your job, you can't, you don't, you don't have the bandwidth on a feature film, like, to micromanage everybody, right? And so... The, the the role of the director is not to be you know commanding like a, like a general but um i imagine it like you're in a dark tunnel and there's a line you know and you're at the front of that line and you're the only one with a flashlight you know um everyone the entire crew team is behind you they're following you right and you have a flashlight in this dark tunnel um and you can you can choose what to shine your light on right and then they they will find you know you know, for example, like if you have an art director, you know, uh, they're a person, you know, they have their own creativity. They're, there's a reason why they wanted to be an art director, you know, as a director, if they, if, if they come up to me asking me like, oh, should this dress be red or green? You know, I'll ask them, oh, what do you think? You know, because they've read the script, they know the story. There's a reason why I hired them, you know, uh, presumably they're very talented and very, um, you know, professional. And so I want their input, you know what I mean? Um, I'm just shining the light on these options and I want them to um, take charge. Um, yeah. So I think that's my, that's, that's kind of like the way I want to, I want to direct. Um, yeah. Nice. It seems like the way you're describing it is kind of a general consensus now with leaders. Um, and especially, I mean, I think it's a general consensus in, in business and um, I don't know about politics yet, but I think it's like kind of going this way, right? Where, Back in, like, I know definitely in the 50s, you can look at a marketing agencies, right? And these directors at these marketing agencies, they're just commanding, like, hey, I want this or I want that. And they're not letting, like, the guys down below have creativity, have some, like, some sort of flow. Because, I mean, in reality, everybody has a brain. And so some people's uh, workflow, it might be a little different than yours. And maybe it's a little better than yours, right? And so I think this just varies a lot. Uh, but generally, I think what you're saying is, like, the right approach. Because... When you just guide people and not command people, they tend to actually do what you kind of want them to do, right? But it just feels like it's in their power. And now their ego is a little higher and they're a little more, you know, confident about things. Um, and so I think generally, I think that, that's a good way to, to go about your directing style, man, because you don't, want, you don't want people to hate you at the end of the day, right? Maybe you're a genius at directing, but I mean, does it really matter if everybody hates you? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, a little you know story I have for that is I know I know people who have said this where basically you know there's you know um 
a female director on set, you know, and she feels the need to be, you know, a first time female feature director, right? And they, they often feel the need to, oh, like, I need to be like a man, you know, I need to command everyone because that's how I'm going to get get everyone's respect, you know, so I'm going to be very tough. I want to be very, be very like, um, decisive and this and that, right? Um, and people on their, on, on their team, the cast and crew, day one, their job is to suss out the director because that will, de- like, that will determine whether their entire shooting schedule will be relaxed or not, you know, like, whether if you have a good leader, like a cool leader, then great, like the production will move, move so, you know, so smoothly and everyone will like that person and respect him. And like, you know, if you need a favor, if you need to go overtime, like they'd happily do that, you know, but I've, I've heard these stories where these like first time female directors will act very like macho, you know, and, and, and unfortunately like people smell that right away. You know what I mean? And um, it, it's tough. And, um, you know, I've also heard of like very experienced uh female directors who are just they go up to they're they're just themselves you know they're just themselves um you know they go up to an actor and be like hmm, you know i don't know you know they're just very they're just themselves you know they're embracing that feminine energy or whatever um and everybody just loves that you know because they're being authentic and they're not thinking that they're better than anyone else it's ultimately that's what it is like it's an ego thing you know i think the director should put themselves at the lowest um you know at, or at least pretend to you know to to gain everyone's trust. And I don't know, something I've been thinking about recently is just the business in general. Like, I don't know about the tech industry at all, but like in the film executive agency, uh, production company world, um, it really seems like the young people um, that are coming up, they are more interested in being friends with people that they work with. Maybe this applies to, you know, the older generation too, but like, I feel like Gen Z, you know, um, they want to work with friends. And so I think that's something that I've really noticed in like a lot of generals and meetings that I go to, if it, if they're young, you know, below 25 or whatever, um, they want to be friends like that, like that's first. And then from that foundation, you want to build a working relationship. Um, there's like this, like no asshole policy, you know? Um, they're just more woke, I guess. <laughs> I don't Do you think know. that works? I think, I don't know. When I was in Korea this summer, um, I took a meeting with, you know, one of the, one of the biggest like Korean production companies. Um, and the way the industry works over there is, uh, this thing called Chuseok. I mean, not Chuseok, that's Korean Thanksgiving, what I'm talking about. It's a thing called, um, uh, I forget what it's called. Basically, the way people do business over there is they drink. They drink together. So what we did was we we went out, we got dinner, you know, and then we just drank all night and uh, built like this friendship, I guess, you know, through that. And it was, it was definitely a culture shock for me, um, but I understand why they did it, you know, because afterwards you're just like, you know, also in Korea, there's this, uh, there's a strong notion of like brothers and sisters and like that kind of family bond between, you know, friends. And so suddenly after you drink together and, you know, you see the best and the worst of each other, you're like, you know, you're like siblings. And then you, you can, from there, you build a working relationship. Um, and I thought that was really cool. You know, it it um, kind of breaks down the, the traditional uh, meetings and generals that I've had where it's just so transactional. Um, it's like everyone's like, you know, wants something or needs something from someone else, which is why you take that meeting. And I think a lot of young people, at least, um, or at least like the industry seems to be changing so that people, you know, want to just work with people that they like. That's more important than the product itself, which is very interesting. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I, got, I grew up, I mean, I think most of us grew up like this, right? Like you don't talk about business and politics and religion, right? With, with friends and family, and you definitely don't go into business or, or talk about money with friends and family. Um, but I'm seeing that more in our generation, especially in our generation, actually, that there's very low loyalty when it comes to business. And so, like, if you're an employee for, for a business, you don't feel like you owe them much, right? Because in reality is they don't care about you, right? So you're just going to leave whenever you want. But the difference is when you do business, um, if you're a good person, at least, if you do business with, like, a friend or family, uh, there's a loyalty aspect there, right? And so uh, you kind of feel tied together. 
and you already get along. And so, I mean, hopefully you, you, you guys don't screw each other over, but um, at the end of the day, I think it's actually, it might be a stronger bond than going into business with somebody transactionally only, like you're saying, because there's just a bond there. I mean, you guys, you guys want to make it. And so maybe that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be so much nicer to make cool shit with your friends, you know, than just some random person that Absolutely. feels very cold and passive, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess in tech, if you look at these big companies, big big corporations, it is very transactional, I would say, where, I mean, yeah, the young new interns and stuff, you know, they, they try to become friends and stuff. But overall, it doesn't feel like let's become friends and work together. But if you look in the startup field and, you know, where real innovation is happening, you see a lot of these founders of startups were just friends, you know, friends working in a garage and just thinking of cool shit and like, let's do stuff, you know. So it, it does feel like a lot of innovative and um, expressive ideas come through friendships. I think especially in creative spaces, the the good thing about working with your friends, right, is that the initial layer of formality is kind of gone. Like, you know, I feel like a lot, a lot of times if you work at an office, right, and it's your boss and you're working for him or her, a lot of times it's that layer of formality doesn't really allow you to fully express yourself. Whereas if you're working with your friend, right, you can call him up or him or her at nighttime or anytime you want and you can just be fully vulnerable with them. And I think in creative spaces, that's so important. And I think, you know, if you forge the right partnerships, thinking that things can definitely go the right way. But I think when things don't work out and you're working with your friends, you know, it can also be tough. Uh, so I don't know. I think it, it's like there's both sides to it, but I definitely see the point in, in working with friends. I want to go back to the point that Thomas, you made about, you know, being on set and the night before you, you got nervous. You know, I mean, I think everybody who's doing something new gets nervous. That's like a human nature thing. But I want to ask you how you overcame your imposter syndrome. Okay, I think everyone has, especially with you making that you know high budget short film. You're on set the first day and you're like, "Wow, I'm here. I made it. What do I do next?" And so, like, tell me how you. I mean, I think it's an evolving process for me, especially as a creative. You know, it's like every single day you you feel like maybe you're not the right person to uh, lead a team, or maybe you feel like you know you have times where creatively you just don't feel productive. And so, how do you keep yourself going and how do you overcome that imposter syndrome that seems to never go away? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just before we get into that, I, uh, I want to kind of quickly touch on something about what we just talked about, um, about you know, just being a good person. Again, I don't know how this applies to the tech industry, but something that I've really thought about and, you know, realized recently was um, I don't go into meetings or any sort of, you know, business stuff with an expectation anymore. Um, and I try and bring that to my like life stuff too, like whether it's, you know, relationships or whatnot. Um, maybe that's a very cynical way of looking at things, but it's really helped me a lot. And I've only had good things happen from that. And what I mean by that is, you know, like going to meetings beforehand, you know, I would, you know, it's, it's a business meeting, right? So like they've read the script, they've seen the pitch materials, you know, they want to track me. And so we're talking business, right? But, and I go into it expecting like, oh, like I'm going to try, like maybe this, this could be the meeting that will get me financing or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, but nowadays, you know, after kind of seeing, you know, how this Korean company works, like I was just so inspired. And I think I sh I've shifted my perspective into being like, okay, I'm going to go into anything without an expectation of anything. I don't want something from them. If they offer, great. We'll see what happens, but no expectation, right? And so what happens is um, I can be my authentic self, you know, and nine times out of 10, the other person um, is loves it because one, it's more memorable, you know, it's memorable. And so they'll, you know, they'll, I think that's huge. Being memorable is huge in life, you know, because uh, there's, there's so much crap out there. So many people who want the same thing. Um, how do you become memorable and stand out, right? You're memorable and also you're authentic and they can smell that you know people who work in the industry they can smell authenticity a, a million miles away and um, when you just are your full self like just you know no filters obviously like i'm not <laughs> i'm not gonna be like bantering like a bro or anything like that but i'm just like you know you know just very open about everything and um being honest and like talking about like really like like 
you know, like what's, where's your soul at? You know, how's your soul doing? You know what I mean? Like talking like deep stuff. And that's always, I don't know, um, been, I, I've, I've seen a lot of success from just being, you know, just someone who doesn't expect anything from these meetings. Um, and then also because of that, they see like, oh, you're a good person. Right. And then, you know, if we do make something together and you make something that's good, right. And suddenly they can associate a good person with a good product. And then suddenly it's like a self-sustaining cycle where people are attracted to you because not only have you proven yourself as a good person, but also you are talented and you can make something, you know, you can actually deliver on your words. And then it's like, and then you have integrity and then you build trust. And then it's just like, I don't know, building a community, you know? And so I think that's really, really important. And it's just been very helpful for me um, thinking like that. And then to your point about the self-imposter syndrome, you know, uh, yeah, of course, like, of course I have <laughs> imposter syndrome, you know, who doesn't, you know? Um, I think when I was shooting C, I don't, I know when I was writing it, I had so much of it. Um, and I just kind of put my head down and just kind of blasted through. Um, during filming, I was just way too busy to even like think about that. Um, but, you know, it's always in prep and like writing that I go through a round of imposter syndrome. When I, whenever I write something, I look back on it, I leave it in the drawer for a couple months, look back in it, look back on it. And then like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. I'm a piece of shit, you know? Um, <laughs> and, I think the only thing that's really helped me is just grounding myself and not thinking about the future. Um, you know, when you look at the top of the mountain, you realize how much you have to go and you realize where you are on that mountain. Um, but I think for me, ignorance has been a little bit of a bliss in the sense that, you know, I try not to focus too much on anything outside of just the craft. If your why is very clear and your why is, um, you know, altruistic and just doesn't have any ulterior motive, you know, um, that I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very, again, it's very easy to look outside of, you know, what you're doing and like, go like, oh, I need to, you know, make a film that will get me to this film festival or get me to here, you know, um, I need to do this home or I need to do this assignment so I can get into a good college or get into a good job or whatever, but just kind of separating all that and just kind of focusing back onto the, the, the reason why you got into that in the first place and why you're doing something, you know, like, you know, I want to tell stories, I want to change people's lives, you know, I want to do this and that. I think those reasons are the reasons why I do what I do. And also, you know, it keeps me looking down at my feet, you know, and not, and, and, and not being um, so bogged down by, um, uh, sorry, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so important. You know, everyone in life has those ups and downs, but like from, speaking from personal experience, something that's helped me repeatedly is kind of just taking a deep breath and reminding myself of why I'm doing something, like the bigger picture. I think people get, you know, because of our lives and how busy sometimes things can be, we kind of lose sight of why we started things, why we want to pursue things. And like, it's crazy to say, but we completely forget at times like why you started something or why you're doing this. And so you're right, keeping that initial thing in mind, it just grounds you and it, it motivates you. It, it brings you up when you're feeling down. So I definitely feel you there. Um, I want I want to talk to you about kind of the two films that we all watched and, and that you know have garnered a lot of attention. Um, C is more so a, a story about you know I was watching an interview of yours and you talked about how there's a lot of internalized self oppression that immigrants feel. Um, so talk to us about what motivated you to write C and you know tell us something about the film that 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 inspired you to uh, finish it and you know bring it to a screen after the screenplay yeah um you know the story is based on me and my friend whose name is c he was a korean american adoptee from you know where we grew up concord massachusetts and um you know he's had a crazy life um he's you know been to drug rehab mental facilities ran away uh, you know, ran out of, you know, away from the country, like just a crazy life. Um, very, you know, it's crazier than fiction, you know? Um, and we, you know, we never really talked throughout much of middle school or high school. We just didn't really want to associate with each other being the few, like one of few Asian Americans in a majority white, you know, environment. Um, Sorry to cut you off. You're from, yeah. you're from Concord, Massachusetts, right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, so it's know, a really, was, like you said, it's a really liberal, very like what ninety percent of the population is white. Um, we're talking ninety. Probably more than ninety. Yeah. What? <laughs> like okay. Okay. Um, it's becoming more diverse now, and things are changing. But uh, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it was still very uh, non-diverse. And um, you know, C is this guy. You know, he he uh, he's huge. You know, he's jacked. You know, he works out. You know, like. Um, you know, kind of the opposite of, he, you know, he wanted to go against the, like, you know, the Asian stereotype of being like skinny, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, again, we never really talked, but, um, as I was writing this short film, I was reflecting on my own identity and I reached out to him and I was like, Hey, um, we'd love to talk. And he worked at an ice cream parlor at the time. And we would just, I would come over after his shift and we'd just sit down in the basement and just talk about our experiences growing up. Um, and we realized, you know, obviously there are differences. Um, I think for one, his experiences were a lot more dramatic than mine just because, you know, he was adopted, you know, he, you know, he had no connection to his Korean heritage, whereas I could always go back home to my Korean parents and embrace that culture if I wanted to. Um, he did not have that opportunity. And so I think because of that, it just, you know, his, a lot of his problem, I hate to word, just hate to use the word problems, but like, you know, his, his, you know, internalized self-oppression, I think, was a lot bigger than mine. You know, it, was a, it, was a, it had more gravity to it. Um, and so, you know, we, we and but we also realized that our experiences in Concord were also very, very similar, you know, and so that's kind of where the root of See the Short Film came from. Um, and after I made the film, you know, I showed it to him and, you know, he said, you know, that, that it, you know, changed his life. And, you know, you know, he realized that a lot of his problems kind of, came from the fact that he didn't like who he was when he saw himself in the mirror and that's exactly how i felt you know that's what that's what i felt i just couldn't i just didn't have the words to describe that feeling because i didn't know about the asian american experience or you know the, the there's a there's a transracial adoptee experience there's so many experiences you know the universal foreigners experience like i just didn't know any of that i didn't know that was a thing you know and so making the movie has been my way of dealing with it and understanding that I felt these things. Um, and from there I could, I can heal. Right. And same for him, like him watching the movie has been a healing process for him because now he knows that there is this thing called, you know, internalized self-oppression, you know, this self-hatred um, against, you know, you know, Asian Americans and foreigners and minorities, you know, not liking the way they look right and that's just that's a and that, that has a huge impact on them on their identity in, in a place like high school where it's just you know everyone's fighting for an identity um and so i was like you know if this could change one person's life change mine and his then like what could a feature film do you know what could a two-hour version do what could something with a bigger audience do and so that's why now we're turning that into a feature film um you know we're we're halfway through financing it um it's like a seven million dollar budget um and hopefully we're gonna shoot that next year um, but you know, there's just, there's a lot of Asian American representation on media. There's a lot of diversity stuff happening, you know, but there really isn't, there isn't actually not, none that I've seen so far, like talk about things like, um, covert racism, you know, like microaggressions, like what it's really like being, um, someone who doesn't fit the majority image, you know what I mean? Um, I'm sure you guys have felt this too. It's just like, sometimes it's, it's like the smallest of things, you know, like, you know, like you sitting at the end of a lunch table or something, you know what I mean? It's just like the smallest thing, but it all builds up. And, you know, sometimes you don't even have the words to describe what you're feeling and, and the oppression that you're feeling. Um, but it's, it's 1000% there. Um, and that's kind of why, you know, we, we told that story. That's why we're doing the feature film. Um, and again, that's what, that's what, you know, inspired me to finish the short film, you know, um, you know, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> I think storytelling is so powerful, right? Because like you said, it allows people to be seen on screen. And what you said, your short film C allowed your friend to be seen and it can help a person heal when someone realizes that, oh, like there's people out there just like me going through the same experiences. I'm not alone. And I think that's something that I struggle with a lot. You know, as a young 20 year old, sometimes you feel so isolated. Uh, by the glitz and glams of everything and just stuff going around you that you, you feel like you're the only person going through what you're going through, but you're not. And I think storytelling lets you uh, 
confirm that, oh, oh, okay, yeah, so I'm not the only one. There's other people going through the same stuff and that, you know, I, I, I can take it one step one day at a time and that, you know, I, I don't have to go through this whole process so alone. Like, it, I, can, I can share what I'm feeling and be vulnerable, but not everybody has that privilege to be vulnerable and open. Like, you and your friend had the opportunity to, you know, kind of connect over the similar experiences you guys were facing right, at that time. Right. And hopefully, you know, the film is not only a way to, yeah, you know, feel less alone, but it's also hopefully a, a conversation starter, right? That's the most important thing. Like me making the film was a way for me and my parents to talk about drugs and, and identity and what it was like growing up in Massachusetts, you know, things that we would never, ever in a million years talk about, you know, in an Asian household, you know, uh, but me making the film, talking about the script and running ideas to them, like that was our way to talk about these very taboo subjects and, you know, sex and drug, whatever, you know? Um, and so that was, you know, again, so when people see the film, like hopefully one, they get an idea of, you know, maybe, oh, maybe these things I felt too. Maybe, okay, now I'm starting to notice these things in my life where it's like I'm experiencing microaggression or whatever. But also, you know, when other people see it, when their friends see it, they have a conversation about it, you know, because I think that's really important. It's um, it's not enough to be a passive, you know, uh, what's what's the word? um and passive ally i think you have to be an active ally um to and really uh make an effort to go against um prejudice and against um racism you know what i mean it's not just enough to be like oh i'm against racism you have to be active against active you know uh fighting against it you know um you know it's like the the black princess model you know the black princess idea you know there's so there's this you know idea you know it's like representation you know it matters why because you know um, you know, so that people can see themselves on screen, but like, why, you know, um, when a little black girl sees a black princess on screen, you know, people talk about that as, as if it's like, you know, I don't know, something, I don't know, but I think when a little black girl sees them, sees themselves on screen as a princess, something beautiful, I think it has a profound impact on them and, you know, they're growing up, you know, uh, more than we can ever imagine. And so I think the power of that, like you said, is just huge. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting point. So I don't know what it is, but I'm very mixed, right? So I'm like half Mexican and then half literally like everything else. I'm, I have like Turkish blood, Pakistani blood, Portuguese blood, English, like it's just, it's all, all over the map, right? Um, and it's interesting when I hear people talk about this because like I can, I can sympathize with it, but I, I've never felt that way, I guess. Um, like it, it was kind of funny because you said like sitting at the end of the lunch table, I remember in like elementary school, like I would intentionally choose like to sit at the end of the lunch table. And, um, and I don't know what it is, but, uh, but I've never felt that like kind of left out feeling, you know what I mean? Um, but I can totally understand it, something that really hit me in your short film actually was when, you know, I found out that he was adopted. Right. And I think being alone, being adopted, that's extremely difficult, you know, uh, to not have like the sense of like true family, blood family, to not have the sense of, you know, how a mother would truly cater for you, right? If, I mean, your mom can be good for, good to you as a stepmom, right? But uh, it's just not the same. And, you know, your dad just, it's just not the same. And then to grow up in a society, you know, where you're kind of left out and you're just trying to fit in, you're trying to figure it out, you're, you're, you're bobbing and weaving, making sure that you're making the right moves. Um, and so I think that's what hit me the most. Uh, so yeah. I think, Matt, it's the power of storytelling is everybody has their own experiences, right? That's why it's so important to just let people express themselves and be creative. Like your story might, you know, some other people might have experienced as well. With Tom's story, there's a lot of other people who've experienced it as well. It's like Absolutely. the beauty of filmmaking is that it, it, sh it should represent our collective stories, the stories of every, you know, in some sort of way, it, it should represent a diversity of human experiences and that can entail a whole range of things and that's why it's so important to have people who look different than each other on screen right so that people can see themselves on screen like going back to that main point um thomas i want to talk to you about you know the the financing aspect of your feature film so you make c hbo max picks it up um and now you're making a feature based off of that is it loosely based off would you say or kind of mainly based off yeah, I mean, it's in the same world, you know, okay. so it's based off of it. Yes, absolutely. It's based off of it. And, and now you're using WeFunder, which is an online um, financing platform for films and other startups. 
uh, and you've raised over $230,000. So you make a short film, HBO Max picks it up, and now you're trying to make a feature, and so you're not stopping for financing options. You're kind of just hustling, and now you've raised over $230,000, which is incredible. What's next, and how, what have you learned through this financing process in, in yeah. trying to make this feature? Yeah, let me tell you. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's hard, man. Days. It's hard to make a movie. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, you know, I wrote this feature script during COVID, which was 2019. Um, and I have an agent at APA. Um, she's really great. And we started sending out the script, you know, like normally in Hollywood, you, you know, you have the script and then you have an agent and they send it out to a bunch of companies. Right. Um, and that's normally how it goes. Um, but, you know, I knew, like I knew before we even sent it out that like no one would bite, you know, like I know that this is a story that's really great. I know like from it's, 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 it's coming from the bottom of my heart and it's, it's a, you know, if I can execute it on it, you know, I know that my vision will be good. Like I know, I know I can make the film and I guess what I'm trying to say. The thing is, um, there's a million other people waiting in line who are, if not equally or more experienced than me, older than me, uh, have more connections than me, have more money than me, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I knew statistically the odds are against me. You know what I mean? There are so many people out there who want the same amount of money, who are fighting for the same amount, and they've already shot a feature or two. You know, they already have experience. Um, why would anyone invest in a first-time young Asian-American filmmaker, writer-director, right? Uh, in Hollywood, it's all about you know, obviously it's like we're in a capitalistic society. It's about money, you know, it's about return. It's about, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so no one would invest in the project, right? We did the whole general thing. We sent it out, you know, um, I took a bunch of these things called general meetings so that they can track me and the project, you know, these companies. Um, but it just felt so transactional. It was on Zoom, you know, nothing came out of it. Um, and I just felt so like, like hopeless, you know, I was like, how do I make this thing, you know? Um, I know these companies aren't going to invest in me. I wouldn't if I were them, you know what I mean? Like, why take the risk when there's so many other people? Um, and then I did this lab with this guy named Jim Cummings, who was kind of like the king of the independent cinema. Um, he, you know, he ran this thing called the Shorts to the Future Lab. I did it with him and he kind of showed me, he showed me how he financed his third feature film called The Beta Test. Um, and he did that through this platform called WeFunder. Right. Um, WeFunder is a platform like Kickstarter, except instead of donations, it's equity based. So basically anyone can invest in your film and, you know, be a part of your community and also get ROI on your film. Right. If when the film makes money um, again, making movies, it's a it's a speculative investment. Um, it's not like a tech startup, so it's a lot more riskier. But there's also the appeal of Hollywood, et cetera, you know, film festivals, you know, the whole production thing and people buy into that. And so. Um, you know, hopefully we also make a return on the film, you know, and we'll make back money and, and you know, multiply their money uh, after we make the film. Uh, but, you know, it's a tougher sell than like a, a tech startup, you know what I mean? Um, but we launched the WeFunder in May of this year. And, uh, you know, we, have, you know, Jim's been such an incredible help. He's our EP. Um, and since May, yeah, we've raised over $270,000. Um, in and out of WeFunder, there's you know extra 40k outside of WeFunder that we're um, gonna funnel through, uh, and then we have a bunch of like pending investors, and so I don't I'm not worried at all that we're gonna hit the three hundred fifty thousand dollar goal in the next month or two. Um, we're just trying to close that out ASAP just so that we can um, kind of focus on the more creative stuff. Uh, so once we get that three fifty, uh, we're also talking with a handful of production companies who would basically gap finance up to the the million mark um so that, that's the budget um and then hopefully we'll go into production and shoot it next spring um but the thing is the thing i wanted to mention is that you know once i started the we funder and started you know people started you know the everyday people just people who have money people who believe in the project um usually it's like friends and family but i all my family's in korea they're all like like what are you doing like they don't know me you know what i mean so it's just all like random people literally just hundreds of thousands of cold emails, cold calls, LinkedIn's, et cetera, to raise this money. You know what I mean? I didn't know, no one I knew on every big investor above a thousand dollars on WeFunder that I raised so far is someone that I don't know. You know what I mean? Someone I just had a Zoom call with or phone call with, and then they were like, this is, this is great. Um, 
but something that I've realized, something that you know we realized was, once we had the WeFunder running, then people were interested. Then these companies were interested. You know what I mean? Like now this is like, now people see that there's momentum on this project, and they're like, oh, it's happening. You know what I mean? Now I want to jump on the train. And so I think WeFunder has been really great in the sense that not only has it been for us to raise seed money and also build a community. Um, it's also been a way for us to kickstart our own momentum of the film and garner interest that way. You know what I mean? Now people are like, it's it's insane. Like it's like the interest before is like you know zero, and then now it's like everyone wants it, wants a piece of the pie. Um, that's the power of democratizing filmmaking, and I think that's where the future is headed. Um, a lot of production companies, I think, should be wary of this and recognize that, um, like you said, WeFunder is basically democratizing filmmaking where anybody who has some money saved up, they can pitch in in Thomas's movie, have equity, and potentially get returns on the film for the rest of their lives. And so, one, if somebody is a movie buff and they want to be part of a project, boom, there you go. You pitch in some money, and now you get your name attached to a film, right, in, in whatever sh shape or way possible. And you don't have to be at the mercy of these studios anymore. You can just be at the mercy of the people. And you're going to be making the movie for the people anyway, so might as well let them be involved in the financing aspect of it. I mean, you're not making a movie for a studio to watch. You're making it for the rest of the world to watch. And so I think WeFunder is such a powerful platform for movies going forward. And, I, and I'm excited to see you meet your your goal of, well, it's $350,000, yeah. that's a goal, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, you're easily going to meet that. So, you know, yeah. sa I'm, I'm sad for all the production companies that lost out on the opportunity <laughs> to attach themselves to this project. Well, we're still talking with some of them. So, you know, hopefully some of them come on board and help us, you know, fill out the rest of the budget. But yeah, absolutely. What you said is so true. You know, like it's uh, democratizing filmmaking. Um, you know, anyone with a cool story, a cool idea and a great presentation, a proof of concept can can do it. You know, they really can. Obviously, it's not easy. It takes a lot of work. You know, if anyone's run a Kickstarter before, it's just like constant stress for a month. You know, it's like, oh, my God, am I going to hit the goal or not? Um, but it's it's one way to do it. And I've always been someone who's been like, who's had that go get it mentality. You know, I, I think the Korean side of me like hates waiting. I'll, I'll be patient. I'll be patient. But I also, if I can, you know, make things go faster, I'll do whatever I can to make, you know, put in the work and, and hustle and, and make things happen. Um, so yeah, it's been a great way to, you know, it puts the power back into the filmmakers, you know what I mean? Like both financially, time-wise, and also creative, creative, creatively. You know what I mean? Um, you know, there's a reason why a lot of big box office films often flop is because then they're given the filmmakers are given notes from executives who haven't made a YouTube video before. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's it's difficult. Uh, you know, there's a reason why a lot of Hollywood films fail. You know, because of this reason. Um, but yeah, it, you know, we'll see. Hopefully, it goes well. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Hey, hey, man, Thomas, I wanted to talk about one more thing was, that was um, related to more of the creative process. Um, obviously, you wrote and directed uh, C, right? And the relationship between writing and directing is kind of conflicted because, you know, as a writer, you envision your uh, film in a certain type of way. And then the director kind of takes it the way he sees it not as the writer sees it so it's kind of a dynamic between the writer and the director in your case you were the writer and the director so how how was that um you know at the end of the day were you happy with how it turned out is that what you envisioned in your mind when you were actually writing the script and also i wanted to ask you two-part question um you know when you were directing were there any really hard decisions you had to make that you kind of Maybe, not maybe regretted, but you were kind of iffy on that. It was something that you didn't really envision when you were writing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to your first question, um, you know, you'll, it's at least the budget level that I'm working at, it's almost impossible to meet your own vision. Um, again, with the first project with C, I think, you know, I wish I knew I, I should have, because it was my first one, I, there's a lot of things I learned, you know, um, for my projects after that you know i tend to over prepare so that i can unprepare during set if that makes sense um i can just kind of play on set um you know i 
uh, you know, with C, you know, I think it's, it was great. I think it turned out, I'm so thankful for the way it turned out, you know, you know, um, making the movie and also after, you know, after the movie in terms of its release and, you know, the audience that it's found. I'm very grateful for that. You know, I think with the feature version, it'll be 10 times better. You know what I mean? 10 times cleaner, slicker, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm really, really excited to share that and, you know, make it, make it into um, an actual movie. Um, but it, it's difficult to, you know, for example, with my uh, other short um, I made last year in Korea, Busan 1999, um, that was a one and a half day shoot. You know what I mean? Usually, you know, it's you're shooting about three pages, about three minutes per day. That was an 11 minute short film that we shot in a day. It was actually longer than 11. It was like a 13 page script because we cut some scenes um, in a day and a half um, for like very, very little money, right? It was like less than 10K through post. Um, and so what happens there is, you know, I don't have the privilege to, you know, I don't have the money to go over and have a ton of days. Because when you have a lot of time, then you can play, you know? When you have time, you can you can let the creative creativity spark. You know, big films, they'll shoot one page a day. And for the for the entire day, 10 hours, you just, you know, figure out what needs to happen on the day. And that, I think that, that's a really great way to work. Um, a lot of creativity and it's a lot of fun. Um, but also that's not the reality that I'm living in, you know what I mean? Um, and so with that film, you know, we have a storyboard. I plan meticulously every single shot, every single sound soundtrack that I, I think, basically I've edited the entire film in my head with sound, music, everything, color in my head before we shoot it, right? But then on set, you know, electricity is out for two hours. We have to get out of location in um, an hour and 30 minutes and we need 30 minutes to clean up and get everything out of here. So we have only an hour left. We already lost two hours of the day in the beginning because the electricity went out and we didn't know the, where the freaking like breaker box was. Um, what do you do? <laughs> you know what I mean? So now it's like problem solving. Yeah. Now it's like go time. You know what I mean? So now you're cutting in your head, you're editing in your head. And you're like, how do I make this the most economic, uh, shoot this in the most economical way, you know? And I think that also breeds a certain uh, type of creativity. You know what I mean? So for example, like instead of covering a, you know, a funeral scene with like a, a wide shot and then doing like a, you know, closer, 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 you know, coverage, it's called coverage. Um, Maybe I just want to shoot the entire thing by a close up on someone's hand, right? Maybe I just want to see them like pull the like the cuticle off their fingernails, you know. Maybe that's how I want to cover the scene, you know. And so I think there's a obviously you need a lot of preparation. You need a, everyone on your team, like the DP, you know, you and and you know the producers. They need to know exactly what the film is and what that scene needs to accomplish. So it takes a lot of preparation. But if you do the preparation, I feel like when you're on a time crunch. Um, it often like becomes a way for you to become more creative. You know what I mean? Like instead of doing like a ton of coverage, we'll just get that one shot. You know what I mean? And and in post and the editing, yeah, we won't have as much coverage and options. But like that close up will tell so much more story and emotion than you know your traditional coverage. Um, and so those are some like hard decisions to make on that you know I had to make on set. But ultimately, I I kind of I kind of enjoy that like thrill of like you're on like two hours of sleep you haven't had lunch or breakfast <laughs> you have one hour to shoot like three pages what do you, you do? enjoy that thrill oh my goodness I, I so i shot a live action short film similar experience where i put in like 10k of my own money and the problem was nobody was getting sleep on set and it killed me i mean i i disagree but i don't i mean maybe it was thrilling for the director but the actors me and my fellow co-actors we were dying because oh of yeah just, like, how dying. tired you get but you're right, though. Like, I feel like some things on the page, you know, you have your your way of kind of imagining the film. But when you get on set, some things just don't click, don't make sense. Things go wrong. And sometimes they turn into a blessing for the movie itself. And, and I think that's the beautiful part of a filmmaking. It's like you never know what truly the end product will be until, like, the you know, you finish uh, filming. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's... That's From cool. what Thomas said, it, it seems like it's a lot about adapting and kind of improvising, you know? And I feel like that improv the, the improvising part can be beautiful because you can... If you have a good producer on set, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you, you know, you, like kind of what Thomas is saying, you can you can have scenes that you, you, you adapt 
into that are even better than scenes that you maybe thought of when you were writing it, you know? So there is a beauty in it, but there's also a chaos element that, you know, everything can go wrong. Shit can go down the drain. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a double edged sword. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, filmmaking, I think, you know, on set, at least it's, it's, it's finding, you know, again, at the level that I'm working at, it's being given the location, the characters, and then the story. Right. And so you have those three elements, those three core elements, of course, they're like costume, all these other small things, but those three main elements. And how do you play with that and create lightning? And how do you capture that lightning in a bottle, that lightning of truth and authenticity? You know what I mean? And every single scene, you need to be able to capture that kind of truth and authenticity. It's just sometimes, you know, obviously, again, there's a lot of preparation involved. And I think when you prepare as much as you can, then on set, you can like let it all go and just play. But also, you know, during preparation, there's only so much you can do because you're not in the space with the actors, with everyone and the lighting and the team and everything. And so when all those elements come together, then you have to figure out a way that all fits together. You know what I mean? And so that's where the improv comes in. That's where the play comes in. That's where you um, figure out how do I spark lighting? You know what I mean? With all these elements, all these different Legos, how do I make something at that moment? You know, you have five minutes, 10 minutes at most before, you know, lighting's done. And um, how do I block this scene? You know, how do I make the actors move around? And how do we change this so that it fits the location and feels dynamic? You know what I mean? Um, and how does this movement enhance the next scene? Or how does this, you know, maybe bring into maybe this, this them going through this door, they meet another character and that's like a foil for them. And then, you know, suddenly there, there's like a different scene that might come up. And then you like at that night, you know, you write that new scene and then you film it, you know, at the end of the, the, the shooting schedule. and. You know, it's just like figuring it out as you go, but also, um, yeah, as much preparation as you can. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, Matt, when we shoot this thing. Uh, Matt and I, we're working on a project and he's a producer on it. So we'll, we'll, he'll, he'll see what you mean when, when he's on set. Uh, he'll... Excited. I'm, I've always wanted to be part. I wanted to be an actor when I was younger, right? Like that was my oh, goal. Man. But my parents never wanted me to do it because they thought I was going to destroy my ego and, you know, all, all the typical answers. But uh, now that Ibrahim like is kind of forefronting this and I have the opportunity to even join like, you know, film, I mean, to be part of the project, right. I'm, I'm all in. Like, I think it's extremely exciting that there's, um, it's like a genuine passion. Right. Um, so I'm just extremely excited. And I'm really, honestly, dude, it's really inspirational what you've done, like on your own without anybody saying, Hey, like maybe you should be doing this or that you're just going after it and you're killing it already. Right. And so, um, you're doing awesome, man. And I think you're going to kill in the future too. One last question, Thomas. There's a young kid right now in Concord, Massachusetts, wanting to make a film, a short film, a feature film. What's your advice to him? How do you make a good film? Or how do you even get started in film? Like I said, I think, I mean, this is something, well, first of all, make it personal. You know, I think story-wise, story is king, obviously. Story needs to be personal. Um, from there, you know, Again, like th my, this has been my strategy and I know it doesn't work for everyone. I know it doesn't. But for me, I've always put all my eggs in one basket. You know what I mean? I've put all, you know, whatever it takes to make that thing. You know, if, it, if I need 7K, then I'll work a job over the summer. You know what I mean? I'll raise the money and then put it into the movie. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not paying for rent because I live, you know, if I'm in high school, I live with my parents, you know, I need to pay for food. You know, you can do it. It's doable. You know what I mean? There's always a way. And so you do that, you raise the money. And unfortunately, filmmaking is so bound to money, you know, because it's an expensive medium. Um, put together together the money, you have a, a script that you're very hesitant about, you know, that you don't think is going to work, that you feel very ashamed, like you feel very embarrassed sharing with anyone. But that's how you know that it's personal. And that's how you know that it means something to you when you're scared to show it off. Um, you have a script that you're very hesitant about. You think it might be too this, too that, but then you just film it. You know, you do, you look up on youtube you everything you need to learn from film school you can learn on youtube you know online there's seriously like more than everything <laughs> and so do that you know you you find a collaborator you find a producer you cold call someone to help you make this happen right and then you know they'll have the connections the spider work you know spider spider web your network from there and just kind of figure it out and make it as good as you can as big as you can and then jump as high as you can after that you know what I mean to the next project you know I hate I hate it to oversimplify this but it's as simple as you said just get after it and go do it and figure out a way if you have a will um, I also want to say to your point about 
you know, being personal in your art. Martin Scorsese has a saying, he says, the most personal is the most creative. And I think it's so true. And, you know, when you, when you start making films, you, you realize that, man, like you said, you know, the story of your friend, you said it's better than fiction. Like it's, it's like more interesting, more dynamic, more versatile, much more nuanced. And sometimes we're, we're trying to make this perfect story without realizing that, wow, I, all I had to do was look in the mirror. The personal story was in front of me, and I just have to tap, you know, tap in, and, and, and access those parts of my personal story. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you for coming, Thomas. Appreciate it, and good awesome. luck to you in, in, you know, finishing up uh, the fundraising for Isle Child, your feature film. Uh, we hope you the best. Yeah, thank you guys so much. It was lovely talking with you guys. Um, have a great night, and whoever's listening. Whoever made it this far. Uh, wow, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll come back in a few years and uh, we'll see how, how different my thoughts are or how, you know, how much I've changed. But Next time we'll interview Thomas at the Oscars when he's nominated for Isle Child, Best Director. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. All right. Take care.